Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good afternoon, Team Krulak community, and on behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brutecast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Krulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, the United States Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. So in the military, it's often said that words mean things, but is the meaning always obvious or even conscious? For today's episode, we have Dr. Elena Wicker to walk us through the difference between the documents and symbols of strategy and the words therein, such as the national security strategy, national defense strategy, the actual process of strategic thinking as, uh, as embodied by some of that language that occurs at all levels of the military. Artificial intelligence and pattern analysis can tell us a lot about the first and a little about the second. Dr. Wicker earned her doctorate from Georgetown University, where she wrote her dissertation on the history and power of U.S. military jargon and terminology and the processes that shape the language of concepts, doctrine, and strategy. Her interdisciplinary and multi-method research combines archival research, interviews, and quantitative methods, including machine learning and natural language processing. She was a 2021 to 22 pre-doctoral fellow at the Clement Center for National Security and spent three years as an adjunct researcher with the RAND Corporation. Prior to her graduate studies, she worked for the Defense Intelligence Agency in Intelligence Security Cooperation. She holds an MA in government from Georgetown University and a BA, magna cum laude, in Near Eastern Studies from Cornell University. So Dr. Wicker, welcome to the program. And I think uh, congratulations as well, because you just recently defended your dissertation, correct? Yes, yes, just in April. Right. So thank so, you um, so much. <laughs> yeah. So congratulations. And uh, I hope the shine is still on the term, the term doctor um, here a few thank months later. I, uh, I sincerely appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, you're welcome. So um, I'll turn it over to you for your initial comments on, on the work you're done and what we're here to talk about today. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, so to set the stage here, I will just say a few words about this project and kind of how I think about the symbols or documents of strategy. So the majority of my research focuses on terminology and jargon. So what really interests me is the life of documents and the text. Um, so when I'm looking at a strategy, I tend to make a very clear differentiation between the document and the act. So I guess to make that a little bit more clear, you know, first, any chat with a terminology researcher is going to be incomplete without some definitions. So um, I'll kick it off with some definitions of strategy, because we have a lot of really brilliant people who study strategic thought. Um, but the United States military has had some pretty strict definitions for, for what strategy is. And it's actually changed several times over the last you know, few hundred years. So through the 1800s and early 1900s, most definitions of strategy focus on the science of command. And they call it specifically a science um, and also the application of principles of war. So we get our first official Department of Defense definition in 1948. And it's this idea of applying resources to support national policies. But what's really interesting about this definition is that it's in order to increase the probabilities and favorable consequences of victory, 
um, and to lessen the chances of defeat. So there's this idea that you are strategizing against an adversary. And this sticks in definitions up until 2002, uh, where we get the removal of this victory and defeat language and this removal of the other. And then in 2006, strategy is shifted from an art and a science to just a prudent idea for achieving national objectives. So I find these kind of definitional changes really interesting because I find that a lot of definition or a lot of analyses of strategy focus on the logic and the circumstances and this process of strategic thought. But I would like for us all today to kind of focus on the label, right? What are the things? What are the physical objects that we name strategies? And here's how we, you know, get to the national security strategy, right? We tend to think of names as identifiers. If we name it strategy, then it is a strategy. But there are plenty of articles and arguments out there that point out how the NSS falls short. Maybe it doesn't drive the budget explicitly enough. There's this great line from a study that says it's so vague, it's vacuous. Um, you know, maybe they're a distraction from debating real strategy and maybe we should get rid of it. But when we look at the NSS and we shift the focus to looking at the label and we remove this kind of preconceived notion that the NSS is this ideal type of strategy and it is the strategic process, then we can look at naming and document titling and look at the documents for what they are. So when we look at something like the NSS through this lens, we begin with this set of what's now 18 documents and they're all called strategies. Now, I'm really interested in the language and the patterns of all the things that shape these documents and many times kind of blunt their impact. Um, and a lot of these effects are actually outside of the prudent ideas that they are supposed to contain. So one of the things that I like to get into is all of the factors that kind of hammer strategy or hammer any government document into a certain shape uh, before it hits publication. So the first of these is the process. So there's an ideal document drafting process where a good idea is written up, staffed, it's judged based on its quality, you know, it's approved if it's a good idea, and then it's published once it's done. Then the public reacts and that document is uh, assessed and judged based on its quality. And one of the things that I found in my research is that, you know, reality is quite a bit messier. Before any words are put on paper, leaders set the success parameters for those documents. And success can be anything from supporting an attempt to reform the entire government to simply getting a piece of paper published, right? So these are hugely different success parameters. Um, to draft that document, you pick a team, and that team is always going to be subject to its own biases. And I don't mean this as a critique, simply that, you know, I sit in the camp that uh, humans are not objective creatures. Right? We're shaped by our experiences. We're shaped by the organizations that we come from. And once this document is drafted, it heads into the staffing process where it is subject or subjected to every stakeholder who wants to see themselves represented in the text. Um, 
and this is a survival strategy. This is not some sort of, you know, malicious manipulation. This is simply that if you are named in an important strategy document or you are named in the future concept, then you have a great justification for your future funding and for your future manning and for your continued existence. So stakeholders are going to want to change the text to reflect the things that are important to them. And the most powerful stakeholders can simply kill the documents if they don't see the changes that they want to see. So you have a drafting team shaped by their prior experience. You have a leader who's saying either, you know, this document has to say this one thing, you cannot uh, make any concessions to the stakeholders or just get the thing published, I don't care what it says, kind of ends of a spectrum. And then it's basically, given to all of these stakeholders. And when we see things like army-wide staffing, you know, that's potentially many people. And then when you get to the end of this process, you know, there are certain events that are kind of the, the like the best times to publish documents, right? AUSA, um, you know, maybe, a, maybe the document has to be published before a change in command. So there are all of these external factors that are shaping the text of documents. Um, and so, you end up with something that is the product of this shaping process. Um, and all of these factors aren't necessarily related to what the document says. They are the bureaucratic process for getting this document through to completion. So we have bureaucratic processes that are shaping things like the NSS, things like doctrine, et cetera. So we can look at, when we, when we take the NSS kind of out of its the focus on its content, we can kind of just look at it as a set, look at it as a genre of writing. Um, we can look at structure. You know, if the NSS were simply judged based on its ideas or any document really were simply judged based on its content, then it might be less structurally constrained based on the documents that came before it. But what we tend to see is that documents like the NSS tend to match structurally the prior editions that were published. So for this most recent NSS, there are 17 prior documents that are setting the expectations for what this new NSS is gonna look like um, or how it's gonna present information. So like the NSS, for example, tends to present three pillars in a regional section, right? You get a presidential preface, you get diplomatic, military, and economic. You tend not to have an information section. So it's dime without the E or without the I, excuse me. Um, and then you get kind of a regional focus. Um, so, so you have bureaucratic constraints, you have structural expectations, um, and then we can dive into the actual text and the actual wording. And one of the talents of quantitative analysis is pattern analysis. So I chose to use quantitative methods to look at themes and trends and kind of the stance analysis of these documents because machine analysis is typically a bit better than a human analysis. We're great at seeing changes in documents, uh, NSS to NSS, but identifying those long-term patterns is something that quantitative analysis is uniquely suited to. So one of the things that I did, and this is uh, a program and a project that I wrote about in War on the Rocks um, and that I also used for my dissertation for several other types of documents is creating language models. 
So most of what I do is use recurrent neural networks. So Bernard Cody, who is the neural network that looks at the NSS and that models the NSS, is trained on the corpus, so the full set of national security strategies. And I like to describe Bernard Cody as kind of a probabilistic flowchart. So you give the program a set of documents to train it on, and the algorithm goes through this deep learning process. It breaks these documents down to their constitutive parts, uh, and then it figures out how most of the documents in the set put those parts together in the end. So it basically creates the most stereotypical version of an NSS that it can. So why it's this kind of probabilistic flowchart is because the network has all of these different nodes, all these different like kind of brain cells. Um, and at, at each cell, at each gate, the program makes a decision about what word or what punctuation is gonna come next. So it's like predictive text in your phone. You, once the network is fully trained, it's broken down the NSS, it knows what a stereotypical NSS looks like, then you can you know, prompt it with a word and it runs through its flowchart and it then spits out the chunks of text that model the sets of text that it was trained on. So like for Bernard Cody, if you give him like the word national, you're probably going to get security next because statistically national security is a term that is used quite frequently in a national security strategy. But the example that I like to use is something you're probably not gonna find is you're probably not gonna get national football league because football isn't in the training set so Bernard Cody doesn't know that that's a possible option to follow national. So it creates these, uh, it's this whole network of kind of probabilistic flow that can write sentences, that can write paragraphs, and it can basically deep write a full national security strategy. So for this project, what I did with all of these networks was prompt them to deep write chunks of strategy, chunks of doctrine, and then do that many times and then run content analysis on those chunks to figure out what the patterns were that the algorithm, that the network was picking up from the text. So one of the things that I always like to mention when talking about something like Bernard Cody, and you'll like, I will never write an article that does not include this if I'm talking about this project, um, is the limitations of using quantitative approaches and especially any kind of approach that falls under that category that people like to call artificial intelligence. Because um, there's often this idea that you can kind of slap AI on anything and it can solve any problem, but especially for this kind of language model, there are things you have to keep in mind. So the first of these is that, you know, you train AI or you train these deep learning neural networks on training sets. So any bias or any problem that's in that training set is going to be learned by the network. So for the NSS in particular, you know, we have now 18, seven of those are written by the Clinton administration. So you're gonna have an AI that is totally overdosed on Clinton. Um, but you have ways to deal with this if you know your training set, right? You can only include you could include one Clinton strategy in that 
training set or kind of adapt the training set to be really um, uh, representative of the kinds of documents that you're looking for. Um, the next thing that I will just warn about is something called overfitting. So the way that these networks learn, the more often a pattern is seen, the more weight it is given in the outputs. So any outliers, any changes that, especially if they only appear once or twice, are going to end up totally flattened out of that uh, final output because they are not long-term patterns in the document. And so this is, this is a good second to point out that this is where these quantitative approaches can really complement a human analysis because like I said before, we are really good at looking at the changes and identifying, you know, why is the Biden-Harris NSS new and different and unique? Um, we're great at that. What Bernard Cody is looking for is how is this NSS just like every other NSS that's been written before? So you can't look at these quantitative model, these quantitative programs at these deep learning models without thinking about all of these limitations. And also, you know, because they're probabilistic, you're going to get some weird stuff too, because every once in a while you're going to get that output that is very, very low probability, especially when you do, you know, large numbers of, of iterations. So at one point, Bernard Cody was talking about how to celebrate Obama's birthday, which is just, there was birthday, there was Obama, paired them together. Um, so deep writers can be really convincing, but they're just models of stuff that's come before. And we have to keep in mind training sets and understand that they make, make mistakes. Um, so with all those caveats, um, the machine analysis of the, of the NSS spit out a couple of really interesting patterns that allow us to kind of figure out what a stereotypical NSS will look like. The first one that's actually like one of my favorite ones is this idea that we're always at an inflection point. Um, every NSS centers itself as confronting a pivotal moment. Um, this new one talks about the decisive decade. Um, you very rarely get an NSS that's like, well, pretty typical year, you know, about the same as last year. Uh, you know, this presidency is about the same as the last presidency. It's very rare. In fact, I don't know if I've seen it. Um, the next trend that connects to this is this idea that we're always needing transformation and reform, and we're not looking back. The interim NSS from the Biden-Harris administration, from the Biden administration, explicitly says, we are not looking back. And actually, to, to the first trend, the opening quote of this new NSS is, we are at an inflection point. So we're at an inflection point. We're not looking back. We have to reform, integrate, more information sharing, whole of government, charting new courses. Again, you're not going to get an NSS that just says we're staying the course. Um, the most powerful quantitative trend in the NSS is language relating to identity. And this is values-based language. So to me, this was really interesting because there are when I was working with Bernard Cody and putting him together, I read several critiques of the NSS that, say, that argued that it was privileging the use of force, that it was privileging military over kind of diplomatic or kind of identity-based arguments. But when we look at the quantitative measures in the NSS, abstract values-based language is the real core of it. It's the most disproportionately present type of language that we see. 
democracy, human rights, fairness, equality, these types of words, um, which ties into kind of this last idea that the NSS is very abstract. Um, compared to typical writing, it contains a lot of really abstract language, which makes sense when you think about the audience for these documents, right? The NSS is one of the few documents whose audience is basically everybody. Um, it's the president's moment to share their vision, right? Reporting to Congress. It is supposed to guide defense strategy, you know, ranks and prioritizes government activities, reassures allies, warns adversaries, um, shows that he's listening to domestic constituents. So this is a document that has to speak to huge, huge variety of audiences. And the way to do that is to be pretty abstract um, because, you know, every audience needs something different out of this document. And this is going to tie into this idea of symbolism because part of the power of the NSS is in its abstraction, is in the space that it gives to different audiences to identify with sections of the NSS and with priorities. And so we can basically crunch an NSS to a sentence of, you know, we're at a critical moment, we will reform the government, modernize the military, invest in allies, retain economic power and promote our values. Like you can capture all of these trends. So to tie this up with the difference between the acts of strategy and these objects of strategy, right? So the NSS as an object, not as the example of strategic logic. The act of strategic thinking is not constrained to the NSS drafters, right? Strategy doesn't have to produce a strategy document. Often it does, but it doesn't have to. That's not necessarily a requirement, right? Strategy is not the art of writing documents. It is, you know, connecting resources to, to objectives. And we didn't have an NSS until 1987. And that doesn't mean that strategy wasn't happening. Um, these kind of prudent ideas as strategy is, defi is defined today, uh, they happen at, at all levels. So when we think about the NSS as this kind of symbolic object, it's really quite unique because it is accepted as this kind of symbolic peak of strategic thought, right? But it's quite vague. You know, what's the purpose of an NSS? Um, the NSS is one of the most public ways that civilian strategy is placed above defense strategies, right? The NDS and the NMS can't be published before the NSS, and even if they are developed in parallel and maybe even completed before it. So there's this ritual of following the NSS. And, you know, the NSS is also uh, supposed to be a report to Congress. And so it's a symbol symbolic nod to Congress's authority, even though they likely have most of this information already. And it's not necessarily telling them things that they don't already know. So for me, as a document researcher, one of the most important kind of ritualistic symbolic processes that comes from the NSS is the nesting. You know, the NSS is a document that all other documents have to match. It dictates language, even if users don't agree with it, right? In the next few months, um, I will be watching to see if we get this cascade of relabeling where 
organizations are going to show how they contribute to integrated deterrence. Integrated deterrence is going to be applied, I would predict, to most capabilities, even though we actually already have 23 types of deterrence already defined, including several that actually overlap pretty neatly with integrated deterrence. So, so the NSS has the power to create this linguistic frame for everything that follows it, and that is, that is a form of power. So just to kind of wrap it all up, um, we take for granted often that the NSS is a representation of our ideal type of strategy, right? strategic thinking, this process, and we focus on the content and the ideas, which I want to make it very clear that I don't think that this is a bad thing at all. Um, it's critical to understand the shifts, but I do think that we have to pair this with an understanding of the NSS as just an object, as a product of process and genre. And if we kind of remove this preconceived notion that the importance of the NSS is its prudent ideas, we can look at these documents as a set, look at these ritual processes, and we find this really unique genre of writing and type of document that is uniquely positioned to activate the civil military relationship and the hierarchy of all of the documents that are published below it and many of the documents and publications that come out of the military. So with that, I will open the floor to questions and I look forward to hearing all of your thoughts. Great. Thank you very much, Dr. Wicker, for um, for that that overview um, and look into your work. Um, I do have a, a couple things we can sort of tee up here, and um, sort of before before going into you know some of that the outputs and, and conclusions that you got from your research, um, I'm wondering if you could spend maybe a couple minutes talking more about the Bernard Cody AI itself. And I, I when I read your piece in War on the Rocks, I was definitely amused for its, uh, you know, its namesake of uh, Bernard Brody, who I believe among his other things, he's one of the contributors to the Makers of Modern Strategy series. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I thought that was, that, was a, that was a fun little like inside strategy joke. Um, but if like, could you just describe like who developed this? Like, did you develop it? If not, was this developed by um, a government lab, a private organization and um, you know, um, has it been has it been used in other? I think you you hinted at this, but has it been used to analyze other other sets of documents or other other problems besides the NSS? Sure. So Bernard Cody is something that I wrote in Python. Um, so it is not a kind of contract driven or anything like that kind of program. It's simply a recurrent neural network that I I trained to be a deep writer. What I did do to check my work was after doing my own version, I did use a service that does provide, or uh, sorry, they used to provide uh, neural network building, deep writer building, they've since closed. So this was last year during dissertation writing that I was working on, on uh, checking Bernard Cody basically by using a commercial product to produce the same quantity of output to then analyze. So the program is essentially just this deep learning algorithm that then is just trained to out to produce this output based on whatever input. So it has about 100,000 neurons, 100,000 neurons. It's about got the same number of cells in its brain as a lobster and it's trained on about 600,000 words of national security strategy. 
And it is one of a family of neural networks that I have built that do a variety of things. So this Bernard Cody is the NSS neural network. There is one that does the NSS combined with the previous NDS NMS QDRs to kind of do this high level strategy writing. There is one that writes army doctrine. There is one that writes army future concepts. Um, and then I have two, one that's trained on Thucydides and one that's trained on Clausewitz on war. Um, and Codewitz is actually, uh, he's a Twitter bot. So he's on Twitter tweeting about deep writing Clausewitz. And uh, yeah, so, so this is just one of uh, a big set that, that I was working on and working with. Um, but I thought that the name was very apt because when you're reading strategy in the missile age, there's a section towards the end where Bernard Brody very clearly says that you should be wary of using like nouveau scientific methods for prediction. And I think that there's a misconception of deep writers that they are predictive, right? They're predicting the future when really they are identifying patterns in the past and reproducing kind of these stereotypical blocks of text. So, so the name is a, a warning to myself to always keep in mind the limitations of these kind of scientific methods, these technological methods, because while they're very useful, they are no replacement for a human. They are a nice complement because I think once you know the patterns are there, it's almost like it's intuitive. You're like, of course they, you know, of course it's gonna say that we need to reform. Um, but you can actually quantitatively identify, you can quantify these, you can see them um, and you can measure them. So, so yeah, so Bernard Cody was, was my effort to complement my own human analysis with something that could identify patterns in a much better way than I ever could. And it's, I will say back to the warning of keeping in mind its limitations, one of the challenges of working with a neural network like this, especially with deep writers, they make a lot of, mis they, they, they make mistakes, right? They talk about Obama's birthday. They get stuck in loops sometimes, right? Like the national security strategy of the United States, national security strategy, United States, right? Like they'll, they'll end up in these circles sometimes. And while they can write chunks, they often can't fully write a, a whole document. So I often had to kind of guide it to give me the, the kinds of sections that I needed it to write. But yeah, yeah, Bernard Cody is just one of a family. It's just a Python. It's just a program that I did check against kind of a commercial version, but. Well, great. And as I had forgotten that you had those other bots, the, uh, the Thucydides and Clausewitz until you just mentioned, reminded me now. And I'm very tempted to go down rabbit holes on those, but I'll try and try and restrain myself. So <laughs> I think, um, I'd love to know what, uh, or, or, you know, what the latest takes bot Clausewitz has been doing on Twitter. Um, but I do have, uh, got kind of one more question and then I'll start turning it over to the ones coming in, in the chat. So I'm curious if you, you know, I know, so you, you, you pulled, you batched together, you know, the 17 different national security strategies in terms of, you know, building, sort of building and training the algorithm. I'm curious, once that was done, did you, did you do any sort of, sort of batching of different, different years to, to look at different patterns? And I, 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 I what I'm getting at is, um, you know, when you kind of wrote about this in your piece on War on the Rocks, 
you know, and you mentioned some of the common commonalities here, right? Like there's always a, we're always at an inflection point, um, reform, modernize, retain, promote values. Uh, another item that you mentioned in your article was, you know, it always talks about like what the next big thing is going to be. Did you, did you ever sort of batch out different years to see if the, the outputs for what, you know, different years might, might've been, were, were there any significant difference to say, like, if you just did the 1990s versus the 2000s versus the 2010s, or were all, were the outputs generally the same? And if that was the case, does that, does that say something about sort of our sort of lack of variety in thinking about, you know, what, what the next big thing is or what the inflection point is? Because it, you know, in the, since the Clinton years, you know, we're looking at about three decades worth of, of events around the world, a lot has happened. But if, if our outputs for the strategy is, is always the same, regardless of sort of how we batch it, you know, what, what implications does that have about it, our, our ability to think strategically? I know that was a lot. Um, so I'll stop there. No. Oh, so I guess I'll, I'll talk about batching and then I'll talk about kind of what I see as the, the implications of this for cutting out different decades. This was a set of documents that I was not able to do that with reliably because the network needs a certain enough, certain number of words and a certain amount of variety to train on. And when you break it out by decades, there wasn't enough text to work with to give that to give me a really reliable idea of those patterns. So I did break it out in a few different ways. The first kind of important thing that I, I noticed was that we have two strategies, 87 and 88, that are structurally quite different from the other strategies. Um, they don't necessarily arrange themselves in that same kind of three pillar regional section uh, organization. Um, and also they are overdosed on the Cold War. So, so those two were outliers. And for Bernard Cody in general, I left those in, but I did try removing them and seeing if it changed a lot. What ended up happening was you just didn't get any mentions of the Soviet Union anymore. Um, so it was a pretty reliable uh, output leaving those in. When I tried to break it apart, you get, you don't have enough variety to not just regurgitate the text that's in the strategies if you break it apart by decade. So while I did do the batching, it was not as reliable as the entire, as the entire set. Now, where I was able to do this really effectively was with uh, doctrine, because doctrine, um, my dissertation, the second half, looks at how strategy, doctrine, concepts all nest and kind of how language interacts between all of these different levels and how they feed into each other, you know, where the sticking points are, where do we get official terminology, like what survives and what is killed in the process. So in that analysis, where you have millions of words to work with, you can break it apart and get more reliable, more reliable outputs. Um, but not for this one, just simply because it's not a big enough set to, to do that batching or to do that kind of chunking of the training set really effectively. For what this says about our ability to prepare, I think the key idea that came out of my dissertation research was that when we look at these documents, 
we cannot simply take them at face value because they are the product of very intense bureaucratic pressures, social pressures, and no idea makes it through staffing unscathed, unless it is an idea that doesn't really matter. Um, unless it's an idea that's just supposed to be published because it maybe reinforces something that already exists. But the, the documents that actually propose true changes or aggressive shifts face a lot of resistance within the organization simply because like pieces of organizations like to survive. They like to keep their funding. They like to continue to exist. And so they'll resist any change that says that maybe they are obsolete now. So I would hesitate to draw conclusions from documents because documents are the product of these really intense processes and they have these kind of ritual symbolic levels of importance that might make them slightly less impactful than uh, something like say a budget, um, which is an argument that you know is is out there that like we should judge strategy based on budgets. And like budgets have very clear direct impacts, whereas a strategy like the NSS is probably going to have a linguistic impact um, that we can clearly measure, but perhaps less of a direct impact on organizations than say cutting funding or cutting staffing. So as a response to like an external environment, I think we just have to really keep in mind that anything that ends up published as a document is not purely judged or purely published based on its ideas. So we can't take the NSS as a, as a clear measurement of how adaptable or how creative our, our kind of strategic, like uh, how, how our, our strategic thinkers, because it is not going to be 100% the version that they wrote in the first place. So I hesitate to say that this reflects poorly simply because the NSS has all these symbolic roles that it does have to fulfill. It has to speak to so many audiences, which make, means it has to be vague. And also it has to get to publication, which means that there are a lot of people who are gonna have the chance to change that text. So I think, I think the prognosis is still good, even though there are very clear, clear trends. Um, just simply that we should keep in mind that we have to separate the act and the document because the document is going to be shaped and battered and hammered into a different shape through all these processes while the thought and the process of the logic of facing a new external threat or something like that is going to be more quickly that thought process is not necessarily going to face all of those same external pressures or kind of publication nightmares as a document is going to um well actually so that 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 last thought there um at least what i caught was uh, between, you know, the, the process and the document and the, you know, versus the actual creative thought goes pretty well to uh, first question here in the chat, which is from Olivia Garrard and asking, how do you balance the value of the reification of strategy in documents versus the practice or the action itself? So I think my, my first question would be like value to whom? Because the reification of strategy in documents. So this kind of concretization of genre in the NSS is very useful for this symbolic and ritualistic interaction between the NSS and ES NMS for informally QDR. 
So it's very useful to that process that is basically we are enacting the power of civilian strategy over military strategy. However, this kind of concretization and almost like funneling into a certain form that happens in documents, while very useful to ritual and to, you know, showing deference to civilian strategy is not necessarily useful to actual, you know, strategy on the battlefield. So that kind of strategic thought is going to be a bit more almost like insular to the group that needs that strategy. So I don't think that you can very neatly compare the value of the document to the value of the practice because both serve very different functions. The document as symbol and as uh, object is incredibly useful to organizational ritual and kind of bureaucratic processes. But the, the act and the kind of process of coming up with these ideas is going to be less useful to kind of civil military. And like there, there are obviously dynamics that go hand in hand, but the practice of strategy serves slightly different purposes. Like the practice of strategy does not exist to reinforce civilian control of the military. Whereas the NSS is, you know, a Goldwater Nichols, uh, you know, has to report to Congress. Uh, the NSS is a required document that's supposed to be produced annually, um, but, you know, doesn't end up being so. But it is a bureaucratic and an organizational kind of kind of ritual. So and, and there are documents that exist at these in other areas or at lower levels. Like one of the things that I tried to do while working on this project was find all the strategies, which was a mistake because there are dozens and dozens and dozens of these strategies across every area of the government, right? There are so many documents that are labeled strategy and those documents are useful in a different way than perhaps the NSS, but it's still, they still serve a different purpose than the actual act of strategizing. So, so it's kind of like the plans are nothing, planning is everything, but you still need to consider both. Um, but you need to make sure that you are creating a clear distinction because judging the NSS as a product of strategic thought and as the kind of epitome and the peak of American strategic thought, it falls short in some ways. It falls short because it's serving all of these other purposes. Um, so I advocate for the kind of distinction of those two. Um, while recognizing they, they are interrelated, they are, you know, connected in many ways, but by making that distinction, we're able to really dig into the kind of symbolic uh, artifacts of strategy and look at them on their own without trying to measure them against this kind of ideal product of a process. So. Okay. Thank you. And I'm, I. I almost want to ask you, like, where we go and look for that, you know, sort of that that actual higher level creative strategic thought. But if that's going to if there's dozens of strategies, we they, that may be a question I don't really want to ask. Um, but I, uh, I I do want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, which were some of the sort of 
the oddball outputs that you had for uh, when you were doing the analysis here. And I, I found the the Obama birthday thing. That's kind of funny. Right. But were there any outputs that, uh, you know, that were that were definitely outliers, but also sort of struck you potentially as having, you know, maybe on an, an, a, a, a deeper insight or a, uh, a unique conclusion and, you know, not not something that, you know, puts two random words together and gives you birthday planning instructions, but you know, something that was that 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 looked like it might have gone into a deeper insight that might not have been manifest on the surface. Sure, absolutely. Um, I guess just to your your comment about higher level strategic thought, like I think it's happening in a lot of places. Like I don't think that there is a dearth of strategic thought. Um, maybe they don't produce a lot of documents, but I mean, any sort of professional military education program, like you know, in universities or even just like at the level of people determining how best to apply the resources that they have available to them, um, which perhaps is not necessarily what you mean by like that higher level strategic thought. But I, I do think that there is a, a large amount of it, even if the NSS is not the perfect example of it. Um, so to output, Bernard Cody had some comments or sorry, uh, some kind of outputs that related to American military self-discovery that were unexpected. Um, so I, I don't want to, I think I included it in the article, uh, but he had several different comments that said that like the war in Iraq was a journey of self-discovery. That is not something that you see in the NSS, but that is something that the program picked up on. And it wasn't, it wasn't a one-off, but it wasn't a major pattern but it was it was very unexpected because there is definitely some sort of language in the nss that is about the united states kind of finding itself there is a certain amount of fear language of fear of being left behind uh, fear of not adapting fast enough um, but the program picked up on some sort of pattern that was talking about how the United States kind of engages in activities in these kind of in the kind of global environment in a way that allows it to learn more about itself, which was not a not a pattern that I expected. Um, now, granted, it could have been again like some sort of some sort of crazy outlier. Um, like for the the bot that I trained on Thucydides on Peloponnesian War, it was convinced at one point that boats fly. So there's because there's some sort of uh, floral language that's talking about them like flying across the water, and the and the program was like, well, boats fly. Um, so perhaps that's the output of some sort of artistic language, maybe like out of the prefaces or something like that. But there was definitely some something it was picking up on some sort of kind of low level pattern not as strong as as you know we're going to reform and we're at an inflection point but but there's something there about you know american identity and american self-development and um i found that really interesting yeah i know i'd, I'd forgotten about that from the article until you just reminded that and that was that was striking and i uh i thought i'm gonna go back and read all of those but it, it is very curious that that it, it picked up on on that sort of pattern because in a very tangential backward way, you, you could argue we learn some things about ourselves and not, you know, not necessarily in a, in a good way, but um, yeah, there, 
I, I guess learning in the sense that we found things that we did not we did not know um, at the outset and had to pick up along the way. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so I put out a last call for questions. Don't have anything else uh, here in the chat, and we are coming up on an hour. So I'm happy to, if you have any final comments or thoughts you'd like to share before we close out here. Uh, go ahead. No, I I think I just want to kind of reinforce this idea that when we think about when we think about strategy, and especially about strategy documents, making sure that we have a really clear understanding of what we are, the metrics that we're measuring these objects by, especially because we have to consider all of the processes and limitations that they have to fulfill in order to reach publication. Um, whims of leaders, you know, one angry stakeholder, um, all of these different kind of gates and gatekeepers that this document has to get through. And then especially for something like the NSS, like the NSS is really unique um, because it has such a huge audience and it's so powerful linguistically um, that I think that it's just a really interesting case study to separate what we mean by the active strategy versus the material objects that come out of that process. And I guess just to close on Bernard Cody, I always like to make sure that we think about the limitations of these quantitative approaches, but also the benefits because humans are fantastic analysts, right? Like we are great at reading the NSS and drawing lessons from it, uh, identifying changes, like analyzing the text, but we can really uh, complement our own analysis by applying some of these quantitative methodologies while keeping in mind that they are severely limited, um, but we can take them for what they are and the outputs that they give us and the complementary analysis that they provide to us. And I think it gives us a much richer understanding of not only these documents, but also kind of the process of strategy because we remove this kind of fixation on, on an artifact, on a document that is so shaped by other factors. So. Um, I guess I will just leave it there, but uh, thank you so much for having me and uh, I really appreciate this conversation. Great, well, I think that's definitely a, a good point to leave it on, um, understanding limitations as well as compliments. So, and, and Dr. Lana Wicker, uh, thank you again from our end for uh, jumping in here. I, I think this might've been another one of the episodes we pulled out by just like cold calling people on Twitter and seeing what <laughs> would happen, but I'm a big fan of that tactic and it seems to keep working. So I'm, I'm gonna keep doing it because we get a lot of good conversations out of it. So, uh, again, thank you very much for your time today. And to our audience, thank you for joining us for another broadcast episode. Uh, we are going to be back again on, let's see, next Monday. We'll have another broadcast live episode, and it's going to be with Dr. Megan Hennessy down at Air University, looking at some of her, her work specifically on educational approaches uh, for the military, as well as I think we'll touch on wargaming a little bit. We're also going to have another down the rabbit hole on the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, actually, right as soon as I wrap up here with Dr. Wicker, I'll be jumping on with Dr. Weber to record that. So you'll have that to look forward to in the next day or so. Um, and as always, uh, please feel free. Uh, feel free. If, if you would like to, uh, we take, we have a survey that's attached to all of our episodes. Please feel free to let us give us your comments. Let us know how we're doing or if there's anything we can do to improve the experience or if there's anything you'd like to see in future episodes, let us know as well as Please, uh, if you like it, subscribe and like the episodes on YouTube, as well as giving us a good review on 
the podcast channel. It does help us reach a wider audience so that we can have more, uh, more uh, unique conversations like this. So again, thank you all. Thank you, Dr. Wicker. And uh, we'll see you again for the next episode. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.